Well, good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen Very good. That's what we're committed to learning more about over the course of the Easter season. We are going through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the longest sustained reflection on the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection that's anywhere in the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, Wilson kicked off the series with a marvelous sermon on the opening paragraph, verses 1 through 11, where we see that the gospel, the news that's so very good, it is rooted in both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and of our future resurrection. And that churches are going to get off track if they emphasize one to the detriment of the other. You have to hold these two things together. Last week we saw in the second paragraph of this chapter that serious problems develop when Christians deny or simply downplay or forget that Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that those who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. And this week, we turn our attention to the third paragraph. If you have your Bible, please turn 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. And it's confusing. Um, I don't know if you were listening while Eric was reading, but um, it's hard to even read. It gets so, wait a minute, I just said that. I'm saying it again. What's going on here? Um, I found that this paragraph can get much simpler if you realize it's talking about two things. Number one, it's talking about the order of salvation. And second, it's talking about the purpose of salvation. And if you can hold those two categories in your mind, uh, some of the kinks and the twists and the turn kind of smooth out a little bit. Let's see these two. First of all, the order of salvation. Uh, verse 20, notice how this passage begins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits, then, so he's talking about the order of events, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom up to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the first thing to do with this is just notice he's trying to sort out the order of events. And there's three events. The first event is described in verse 20 and the beginning of verse 23. It's the resurrection of Jesus when his body was raised from the dead. Event number two, this comes up at the end of verse 23 when Jesus returns there will be the resurrection of all those who belong to Christ. Event number three, this is verse 24, then comes the end when Jesus completes his victory over everything that is defaced, oppressed, and spoiled God's magnificent 
creation, including and especially the annihilation of, notice the end of verse 24, every rule, authority, and power, and then verse 26, death. And the son delivers the kingdom to the father. Okay, the order of events, three events. First event, this has already happened 2,000 years ago, right? Verse 20, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact. Now, all of Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Christ from the dead being a fact, not an opinion. Now, listen, the word resurrection is a very specific word. It can only mean one thing. A body that had died and was decomposing is reconstituted, it's raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is only about his actual body being made alive again and Jesus existing like you and I exist as a body that's a person that has an essence. Now, here's the big deal. If Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, we saw this last week, we of all people are most to be pitied. Everything depends on this. Everything depends on this being a fact. Not, not that um, Jesus is with us like grandma is with us, you know, People say this at, right um, when death occurs, like she's still here, she's in the wind, she's no, no, resurrection is not that. That's a thing. Like, I still have a sense of my mom, right? There's still moments when I, I remember my mom and when I, when I feel her essence, like what she was about, you know. <laughs> Good manners. Anytime a woman says to me, you go first through a door, my mom's essence assaults me and that I'm not allowed to do that first. My mom wasn't a modern woman in that respect. Um, she would stop at a door and just wait for a man to show up. Uh, my wife was not raised this way. And Janelle doesn't know when she goes to a door which side of the door to stand on so this can happen elegantly. Not that we still have conflict over it. <laughs> My wife's a modern woman. In fact, in historical fact. So here's the deal. Look, if you're one of the people who struggle with Christianity, like if it's for real, if it's just groupthink, why are you, well, with thinking that you're only a Christian because you were raised in this stuff. This, this is one of those all-in moments. All the chips are moved in. Over and over, the Bible says, all the chips are in on this one. If Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, and that was an event in history, then Christianity is a sham. So here's the good news. Cool. I'm being asked to believe something that can be proven. So prove it. Now, the way you prove historical events is different than the way you prove something in a scientific lab, Right? That's why there's a separate department at JMU for the nerd, the scientist, <laughs> and the really cool people in the liberal arts, right? History has a different methodology. There's a different methodology to, to establishing a historical event 
than there is to establishing a, a scientific fact. And one of the big problems we get into in the modern world is, is the hegemony of science. That the only way to establish certain fact is through scientific processes. And we've suddenly become ambiguous about the capacity to establish other kinds of facts. Christianity is all in on if Jesus rose from the dead or not. And if it happened in history, it can be investigated. And if you investigate it appropriately through historical means and, and it didn't happen, walk away. This is not worth it. If it did happen, then you have to answer the question, what did that resurrection mean? Christianity is, a, is built on the fact, in fact, Christ has been raised. Now look, if you're somebody who struggles with, if you really believe this or not, that's okay. It's, it's not a huge deal. It's all right. Faith is a big spectrum and some people are 100% atheist. They're never tempted by belief. <laughs> like they're absolutely certain of their unbelief. Other people are all the way in the opposite direction, 100% certain of their belief. They've never doubted. And it's really like I've discovered like a bell curve. Very few Christians I know have never doubted or never tempted by doubt. Most are. Most are somewhere in the middle. There are some, there are a few people in our church who faith has always been easy and it's always been absolutely confident for them. And in the same way, those who don't believe in God, those who are atheists, very few of them are like as certain as your great grandma was about her faith maybe. Very few of them are absolutely sealed. Lots of people who don't believe in God are tempted by belief. And lots of people who, don't, who do believe in God are tempted by disbelief. It's okay, wherever you are, it's okay. Now deal with it. And if you would like to investigate the historical fact of the resurrection, come and talk to me. I'm happy to share with you what I think are the, mo are the best resources to investigate it, that believe it and believe it didn't happen. Like this is something you should go for. Okay, that's the first event. It happened 2000 years ago. Event number two, it hasn't happened yet. Look at verse 23. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then one day at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be raised in the same way that Jesus was. That this will be something that actually happens. Now, look, it says at his coming. In Greek, the language this was originally written in, that word is parousia, at his parousia. It means presence or appearing. It's the opposite of absence. It's a word that was used in the Roman world at the time to describe the ceremonial arrival of the emperor when he goes to visit one of the cities uh, hundreds of miles away from Rome. And he's never been there before. He's never been there before in your lifetime. If he ever does show up, if he ever does appear, that's called a parousia. It's a big deal. Um, and, and in the New Testament, the New Testament writers, they took that word and they used it to describe Jesus returning. Although he's not absent from the church or the world, when he appears at his second coming, it will be like the arrival of the emperor into one of his cities. 
In other words, the resurrection of Jesus was the moment when the one true God appointed the man through whom the whole cosmos would be put back together into its proper order. We saw this in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, God, you're amazing. How majestic is your name? And I look at the stars and the heavens and you're just, man, you are massive and creative and powerful. And then there's this creature that has so much power that he's just a little under you. What is man that your minds love him, yet you have made him a little lower than God? Then the heavenly beings, then God. What is this? This creature that has so much power. And then it goes on to say that this creature rules everything. And what we see in Jesus is that Jesus came to put right what humans had put wrong. I'll come back to that in a minute. This, this whole part of this scripture is a reference back to the first three chapters of the Bible, the strange and haunting tale of a wonderful world spoiled by the rebellion of this creature that's just a little under God. So Jesus following his resurrection is already the Lord of the world, already ruling as king. And notice how in He's described in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is God's anointed king, installed as the world's true Lord. And while we are awaiting his royal arrival, the present time we live in is the time when Jesus is already reigning, but the purposes of his reign have not yet been completed. And what is the purpose of Jesus' reign? What is the purpose of salvation? The purpose of his reign, the purpose of salvation, this is in verse 24. It is to destroy, literally to annihilate every rule and every authority and power, including, verse 26, death. Now, what does that mean? What is every rule and every authority and every power that Jesus is going to destroy. These are the structural powers that hold us helpless and in bondage as victims. These are the oppressive structures which hinder God's purposes and entrap humans as tools. These are the forces that are hostile to God. This is corporate and structural evil, and sin. This is any kind of structure that's opposed to God, whether it's social or political or economic or ethical or spiritual or supernatural. These are the forces in our world that we humans simply cannot extricate ourselves from through mere determination of will or protest or legislative action or ethical reforms, these are the powers that are just too powerful. And when, when this happens, when Jesus annihilates these things, the son himself will be placed in order under the father. Jesus remains intimately related to the father at this point, but subordinated to him. The father shares his unique glory with the son the father is the one from whom everything comes. The son is the one through whom it all comes. So there will be a time when the entire 
cosmos is going to be put right. It's going to be put into the shape the creator always intended. And part of that includes Jesus Christ himself revealed throughout the cosmos as the father's true and only son. And notice, at the center of this story is the death of death, the annihilation of death. Not us escaping death, but death being kicked out. Verse 26, the last enemy to be annihilated, destroyed, is death. One day, God will complete his work of salvation and the final enemy, death itself, will will no longer be a part of material, physical life. And when that happens, like it says at the end of verse 28, God will be all in all. Now, it's important that we notice how this passage helps us to see something that's really important about how the early Christians thought about the world. And to put it bluntly, the early Christians were not very interested in what happens to people immediately after they die. They were extremely interested, however, in a topic many Western Christians in the last few hundred years have forgotten altogether, namely the final new creation. The new heavens and the new earth joined together and the resurrection of the body that will create new human beings to live in the new world. Jesus, as the Son of God, conceived in the womb of Mary, was born, lived, ministered, taught, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, assumed universal authority, sent the gift of the Holy Spirit, formed the church, gave it its mission, not merely for our souls to go to heaven when we die. Rather, Jesus came to redeem the world, to hold us in heaven until he does that, but then to redeem the world and to give meaning and fulfillment and purpose in life to his disciples in his kingdom here on earth. Now, he came to renew shalom for his people and the entire creation. If you imagine a future without a body, without a world, you're imagining something that is sub-Christian. If that was what God was aiming for, he wouldn't have raised Jesus' body from the dead. He would have just like taken his essence, but he didn't. He took his body and renewed it, and then it's called the first fruits. This is the beginning. We need to adjust the notion of salvation that many modern Christians here in the West assume that Jesus died to rescue people from this world for a faraway home in heaven. We've got to broaden the scope of Christ's redemptive work beyond life after death, beyond simply going to heaven. Is there life after death? Yes. But we need to recognize that in this long chapter, the longest is saved reflection on the resurrection in the entire Bible, it doesn't talk about heaven. It talks about the new creation. All it says about those who are dead now is one, they belong to Christ. And two, 
It says they're asleep in Christ. We've got to broaden the scope of what God was up to in Jesus' death and resurrection to something beyond life after death, beyond simply going to heaven. We have to broaden our understanding to include a creation remade as a creation without death. The final hope of Christians is not going to heaven. Heaven is the waiting place. Very comforting, big stretches of life. If any of you have ever faced death, the knowledge that you will die in Christ and that you will rest in Christ and you will be held by Christ, that's so good. It's not enough. It's not enough for what the cross and the resurrection were about. The resurrection into God's new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, a new creation that has been completely healed of every power and authority and even death is no longer a part of it. Look, it might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead for someone to wonder whether creation was a lost cause, whether God's handiwork was flawed beyond hope of repair, whether we've just made too bad a mess of things. Before God raised Jesus from the dead, that kind of hope, a hope we call Gnostic, the hope for redemption from creation rather than the redemption of creation might have appeared to be the only possible hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that fact rules out any possibility of a bodiless future hope, like our marvelous painting here shows, in Christ, the second Adam, Jesus is the second Adam, the first Adam is rescued, and the first Eve. And and the deviance of their will and their fateful leaning towards death has not been allowed to uncreate what God created. So Christ does not save us to take us out of creation. He saves us so that we will enter more fully and more harmoniously into it. And so look, if your body is aching and you are living in a stage of life where you have a deep desire to escape, read books, look at paintings, pray, do everything you can to stretch toward the greater hope, the restoration of your body, the restoration of your family, the restoration of this world. That's the Christian hope. Jesus went to the cross so that God's kingdom may be established on earth as in heaven. The gospel is about the restoration of all of God's purposes in all of God's creation. The purpose of salvation is not the abolition or the abandonment of the world. It's about the son's victorious annihilation of the forces that hold us in bondage, the annihilation of everything that is defaced oppressed and spoiled God's magnificent world, including and especially death. Now, that's the paragraph in a nutshell, the order of events and the purpose of those events. I want to wrap up by pointing out three ways in particular 
that I want to encourage you to apply this to your life. First of all, this means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for all of the activities of our life. When we fail to notice how comprehensive and restorative God's salvation is, one result is we fail to take account of the significance of Jesus for all the activities of our life. And so we run the danger of isolating Christ to our souls and our need for forgiveness and our need for spiritual healing. But our life in the world, our work, our homemaking, our pleasures become something that exists alongside our Christianity. Instead of at the center of our Christianity, As Christians, we have to learn to see the relevance of Jesus Christ to every square inch of our lives. What does the cross and the resurrection have to do with your pleasures, with with your hobbies, with your home, with the way you decorate your home, with the purpose of a home, with your relationships, with your work? And as we'll see in the weeks to come, that's where the rest of the chapter begins to go. It begins to show how the resurrection of Jesus's body and the future resurrection of our body and God's plan for this world, how he's about all of this, all of the activities of our life. We'll look at that more in the weeks to come. Second, another thing we can do with this passage is we can learn that death really is our enemy. It really is. And so whenever we find ourselves trying to soften the pain someone is going through when a loved one dies, be careful how you try to soften it. Because there's a nasty habit in America today of trying to soften the pain of the loss of a loved one by diminishing the the nastiness of death. By saying things like, oh, they're not here anymore. That's just their body, their soul, the thing that really matters is in heaven with God, as somehow acting like death isn't the enemy, trying to diminish its nastiness. That's not how we comfort people. Uh, Look, don't diminish death. Don't, don't, Don't settle for a hope away from your body. And this is hard because it takes imagination, right? It's hard to imagine a world without decay. It's hard to imagine human bodies that don't diminish. Look, always remember, whenever we pretend that death doesn't really matter, that's blasphemy. To say or to act as if shedding this body is not a big deal and is an acceptable outcome, that is blasphemy. If death is anything other than an enemy that must be annihilated, then we are denying the goodness and the beauty and the power of God's creation. And the point of the resurrection is the defeat of death in bodies. Finally, a third look. If, if the point I just made about kind of diminishing death, I think that tends to apply to my generation and older because we grew up listening to, to a lot of gospel music. 
that says one day I'm going to fly away and that's going to be good. The essence of me is out of here and that's what I'm aiming for. And there's a whole bunch of songs written in the late 1800s and the early 1900s that have formed our imaginations more than the Bible have. And so my generation up, we got a problem and we got to quit it. Those younger than me, let me pick on you for a minute. This business about um, angel numbers and crystals and astrology, you got to quit it. Because every power and every rule and every authority is not your friend. It is bondage. It is the revival in America today of paganism. It is a different religion. Those powers, they are not benevolent. They will not die for you. They are slavers. That stuff, that's slave ships. And Christ is going to destroy it. And God is going to be all in all. And that is a much better future than one ruled by some determining force in the universe that does not love you and know you and would die for you. Come out from it. Christ died for you to be delivered from it. Don't play with that stuff. It's not funny. And it's not safe. He will destroy all of that because it is, it's a slave ship. And he came to bring life. Let's pray.